Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message titled, A Message of Hope. All right, so earlier in our study of the book of Acts, we saw the leaders of the church of Antioch. You remember this from like three or four weeks ago? They laid hands on and they prayed over and they sent out Paul and Barnabas to go across the Roman Empire and to spread the good news of Jesus in other lands. And so after being sent out by their local church, we see that Paul and Barnabas departed on what is known as Paul's first missionary journey. And so what time frame are we at in Acts chapter 13? We are right around AD 48. AD 48, Paul's first missionary journey. Their first stop, if you remember from three or four weeks ago, was the island of Cyprus, where they actually led the Roman governor of that island to the Lord, a guy named Sergius Paulus. And now it's time for the missionary team to head north and to go on up to a place called Pamphylia. And so today we're gonna pick it up in chapter 13, verse 13. Now why are we starting in verse 13? Church family, help our visitors, because the last time we were in Acts, what, what, what verse did we end at? 12, okay, so this is what we do 95% of the time if you're visiting with us. We just go verse by verse through the scriptures because in this place, we actually believe this is God's word. So what better thing to talk about than God's word, right? And so verse 13, now Paul and his companions, and that's interesting, that phrase right there, because up to this point, it's been, and Barnabas and Saul, <laughs> but now it's Paul and his companions, and so Paul is listed first. Paul's coming to his own. Paul's becoming the leader God called him to be. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. Now let's stop right there and take a quick look at our map. If you were with us three weeks ago or so, we saw that the leaders of the church of Antioch, as I just said, laid hands on, prayed over, and sent out Paul and Barnabas from Antioch of Syria. On the right side of your screen, the purple colored country, if you can see Antioch of Syria, say amen. amen. And then they jumped on a boat down at the port city of Seleucia, and they sailed over to the island of Cyprus. They landed in Salamis, they began to share the love of Jesus with people, and they made it all the way across the island to Paphos. That's where Paul cursed the false prophet Bar-Jesus, causing him to be blind for a season, and that's where they led Sergius Paulus to the Lord. Now they're getting on a boat, the missionary team, and they're heading north 200 miles. They're sailing up to Perga in Pamphylia. That area there, by the way, is modern day Turkey. And so it's in Perga that something really surprising happens, and we read about it in the second half of verse 13. So please look at your Bibles again. It says, and John. Now this, of course, we've already talked about this, is John Mark. We were introduced to him back in chapter 12, verse 12. And John Mark, look at this, left them. It's like, what? That's surprising. And John Mark left them, left Paul and Barnabas, and returned to Jerusalem. Now back in verse five, it says that Mark went on the, Paul's first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas as their assistant. That means he was the guy who was in charge you know, to buy the tickets. 
to sail across the Mediterranean to secure the donkeys once they made landfall for their travels, you know, to buy and prepare the food, to set up and tear down um, the tents. Colossians 4.10 says that Mark was Barnabas's cousin. And so no doubt Barnabas is ecstatic. He's excited because this young man, his relative, has an opportunity to go with them and to serve and to grow in ministry and grow in his relationship with the Lord. But what's surprising is that as Paul and Barnabas are packing their bags to continue their journey up to Antioch of Pisidia, Mark's packing his bag to go home to Mama in Jerusalem. Now the Bible doesn't tell us why he left. So we have to be really careful because how many of you know that one day we're gonna, we're gonna meet John Mark in heaven and you know, I don't wanna explain to him why we said some negative things about him, um, but he did leave. And as I read the commentaries this week preparing for this message, there's lots of opinions of why he left. Some people said he just got homesick, he missed mom. Mom lived in Jerusalem, remember mom had the big house in Jerusalem where they had the prayer meeting for Peter to be released from prison. And so he's, he's missing mom, he decides I'm going home. Other, other commentators said, well, uh, mission work was too hard, right? The seas are filled with pirates, the roads are filled with bandits, and so he decides, you know, this is too difficult, I'm going to go back home to Jerusalem. The third reason I read about this week intrigued me. Some scholars believe that Mark left because he was never called in the first place. You guys remember what the, the leaders of the church of Antioch, you remember when they were praying? You remember what the Holy Spirit said to them? Let's, let's, let's go ahead and look back at it in chapter 13, verse two. Go ahead and go back a few verses. Chapter 13, verse two. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me who and who? You tell me. For the work to which I have called them. Now notice the Holy Spirit did not say, set apart for me Barnabas, Saul, and John Mark <laughs> for the work I have called them to. He just said Barnabas and Saul. So the question is, was Mark called into the ministry at this stage of his life. One commentator that I read this week inferred this. If you're taking notes, this is the first fill-in on your sheet. Paul and Barnabas were sent, but Mark just went. And so here's what you need to know. Here's the bottom line. Ministry's hard. And so if you have aspirations to go into the ministry, you need to make 100% sure that God is calling you before you go into the ministry. How many of you know that those of us who are in full-time ministry, those of us who are pastors, have a big old target on our backs? Absolutely, now all, all Christians do. But, but can I ask you to pl please pray for your pastors? Please pray for your staff members? Because listen, we, we have targets on our backs and ministry can be very hard. But, but, but here's, here's the thing, when ministry is hard, the beautiful thing is that you can think back, hey, I remember the day God called me to go into the ministry. You see, ministry is not for the faint-hearted and ministry is not for those who have high aspirations, you know, to stand under the lights and to talk to a lot of people. If that's your, if that's your, um, your opinion of ministry, man, you've got ministry all wrong. Ministry is hard, the target on the backs of ministers is big and you need to know that you've got to be called 
Because if you're not called, listen, you will be chewed up and you will be spit out. The issue of Mark leaving is gonna come up again at the end of chapter 15. And so we're gonna revisit this whole subject that we're talking about now at a later date in about a month. But here's what you need to know. I'll give you a little teaser before we get to that place that when Paul and Barnabas are ready to go on Paul's second missionary journey, Barnabas is gonna say, hey, Paul, Mark's back in town. Let's bring him on our second missionary journey. And does anybody remember Paul's reaction? What did Paul say to Barnabas? Uh-uh. He already quit on us once. We're not gonna have that happen again. And Paul and Barnabas, listen to this. If you're with me, say amen here. Two spirit-filled men like rams, budding heads, clashed. And so we're gonna talk about this in a later sermon, in a sermon that I'm probably gonna call When Christians Clash, and we'll talk about what to do if you're having an argument with a fellow believer, but that's for another time. John Mark leaves, he quit. Does that mean that Paul and Barnabas quit, yes or no? No, look at verse 14. But they went on. Praise God, they just, you know, let the hits keep coming, we're moving forward. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch, not of Syria, not to their home church, this is another Antioch. They came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, sundown to Friday to sundown on Saturday, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Let's look again at the map, and so they were in Paphos of Cyprus, they got on a boat, went 200 miles north to Perga. Mark decides, I'm gonna go home to Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas said, we're gonna move forward. And so they jumped on their donkeys or whatever, and they they went north about 100 miles, way up in the mountains, to Antioch of Pisidia. So if you're looking at Antioch of Pisidia up there, just say amen so I know that you're with me. And it says on the Sabbath day, They went into the synagogue. Why? Here's what what you need to know. Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. (laughs) He used to be a Pharisee. And so he has a burden for his fellow countrymen, the Jews. Paul wanted more than anything for his fellow Jews to accept Jesus as the Messiah. Look at what Paul will later write to the church of Rome, in Romans, he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for Israel, is that they may be what? Saved. Do you see that? Ladies and gentlemen, I wanna just pause here for a minute to make sure you see that last word. Paul was burdened for his fellow Jews to be saved. There's two types of people in the world those who are saved and those who are not saved, those who are forgiven and those who are not forgiven, those who have looked to Jesus as their Messiah and believe that he paid the price for their sins on the cross by God in the flesh shedding his blood and they say yes to Jesus. I believe you died for me, I believe you paid for my sins, I believe you rose again. Come, listen to this word, be my personal Lord and Savior. Because it's not enough to just believe that Jesus died for the world. Listen, you need to come to the place in your life where you believe he died for you. 
and he rose for you. And then you're saved. That's how you get saved. And I know in a room with this many people, there's people here who are not saved. I'm not coming down on you because all of us at one point in our lives were not saved. All of us at one point in our lives did not know Jesus. Jesus is the answer. God became flesh and went to a cross and died for you. Why? So you can just kind of live your own life? So I can live my own life? No. He did it so we could be saved from a place called hell. And so Paul said, hey, I want Israel to be saved. And thank God in his day, thousands and thousands of Jews like today have turned to Jesus as their Messiah, but sadly, most of Israel had not. And so what Paul would do, part of his missionary methodology, is when he would arrive into a certain town, he would first usually go to the synagogue and share the good news of Jesus with the Jews, and then he would go to the Gentiles. And so on this particular Saturday, according to his custom, he went with Barnabas into the synagogue of Antioch of Pisidia. Let's find out what happens. Look at verse 15. And after reading from the law and prophets, so they're in the synagogue, I want you guys to picture it, and they're reading like they do in synagogues from the law and the prophets. And so after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, to Paul and Barnabas, saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul, look at this, stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Now you need to know that by this point in Paul's life, he is so filled with the word of God that when he's given an opportunity to stand up and share, he immediately stands up with confidence and he shares. And because he's filled with the word of God, guess what flows out of Paul? The word of God. Colossians chapter three, verse 16 says this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So I have a question, I want you to answer it in your heart. The question is this, like Paul, are you so filled with the word of God that if someone asked you to stand up and share, that you could do so with confidence? Let me ask that again. Like Paul, are you so filled with the word of God that if someone called you, brother, sister, do you have any encouraging words to say that you would be able to stand up and share with confidence? You might say, uh, not yet, but I wanna be. Well, here's your next point if you're taking notes. Are you able to walk through an open door and share the good news of Christ with others? Now, if you say, not yet, but I wanna be, what do I need to do? Here's what you need to do. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the answer right there. Now I'm all for you know memorizing the Romans road, memorizing EE, memorizing the four spiritual laws. There's nothing wrong with those evangelistic programs. But the bottom line, ladies and gentlemen, is that we need to know this book so that when someone wants to talk to us about the things of God, the afterlife, about Jesus, that we're so filled with the word of God that what flows out is the word of God. At Calvary, we wanna help you grow in your knowledge of God's word. We wanna encourage you at Calvary to get on what's called a pathway for growth. 
And so the first thing you need to do, which is not on that list, as I said earlier, is if you have never turned to Jesus Christ under conviction of your sin, knowing that your sin will send you to hell, but believing that he paid for your sins on the cross and rose again, and if you have never received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, that's the first thing you need to do. It's a free gift. Accept the gift of God's love and grace. Come to Jesus and ask him to forgive you and be your savior, right? And then the first step of obedience, which is not part of salvation, but it's the, it is a step of obedience, is are you baptized? Here's the question. I ask it like thousands of times, right, church family? Have you been baptized, help me out, since? Have you been baptized since you received Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Because the Bible, nowhere in the scriptures does it teach infant baptism, it's just not here. You see, that was added as a religious tradition. The question that we have to answer today in 2019 is are we gonna live by religious tradition or are we gonna live by the Word of God? And the Word of God says that first they came to Christ in faith, then they were baptized. So have you been baptized since? Jesus said it's a command. This is the time where you can publicly profess your faith in Jesus. It's through baptism. If you weren't with us for our first Thursday service, we had our first one in September uh, earlier this month. It was, it was amazing, you missed out. Because what we did is we shared a devotion from the Word of God, much shorter than what I'm doing today. Um, for that reason, some of you are coming to Thursday, first Thursday I know in October. Um, but it was a short devotional. And then um, we had communion. And then we all went out in the courtyard and we watched 16 people get dunked in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was amazing. It's a beautiful thing. And so, man, if you haven't gone public with your faith through baptism, sign up. Go to our website, calvarypsl.com, click on next steps, and say, I wanna be baptized. Now, a pathway for growth. You heard uh, Andrew talk about engaging with the message. So what we wanna encourage you to do is during these weekend messages, I, my, one of my life goals is to pour myself into the life application verse-by-verse -verse teaching of God's word. And so this is what I've been called to do. This is what I love to do. So I wanna encourage you guys to come and bring your Bibles to church. I, I, in 2001, after 9-11, um, I was serving at Calvary Jupiter before my wife and I came with our daughters and planted this church. And I was an associate pastor there. 9-11, we all remember where we were when it happened. And then I was sent by that church to go to a seminar in a big city because um, I was a, a biblical counselor in those days. And so we went to a seminar of how to help people in crisis, how to help people who were just experienced a tragedy like 9-11. So in case the terrorists attack again, that we're ready around the country with people who can be first responders. And just like, thank God, our, our police and our firefighters are there to intervene with the physical needs that we can come and as ministers and help with the spiritual needs. And so I went to that whole seminar in that big city. And I was there over the weekend, so I decided to go to church in that big city. And I went to this church, it was a mega church, and it was probably 10,000 people there. And, I, and I, I, I walked in and I had my Bible and I'm looking around at all these people and I, this big mega church, I don't see one person who has their Bible. And I thought, what's happening, Lord, in the church? Why are we getting away from God's word? 
Now, I understand that some of you guys like to bring the Bible up on your iPad and you have your notes there, and I'm not knocking that at all, though sometimes I will tease and say it's your fake Bible, but I don't really mean it. You know, if you want to access God's Word electronically, great. But can I, can I encourage you guys, can we start today to maybe try to bring our Bibles to church? Amen. Wouldn't that be cool, right? And engage the Scriptures. Because this really is God's word. This is his love letter from heaven. This is his instruction manual for life. The answers to life are right here. And so bring your Bibles, man. Uh, take notes if you, if you like to take notes. Listen. How many of you guys ever heard Charles Stanley preach? Right, he is a great preacher. And you know what he says about 100 times during every single message? Listen. You <laughs> You know. Listen, listen, listen. Why? Because I know I used to sit where you guys sit. My mind used to wander as pastors like me would preach. And so guys like Charles Stanley are constantly, listen, right? And so, by the way, Paul's gonna do that here in a minute. Listen. <laughs> so I wanna encourage you to listen, to bring your Bibles, to take notes, and then join a Calvary group. We've been talking a lot about this, so I'm not gonna preach here. But, but man, you don't have to do the Christian life alone. You can make friends of people who love the Lord and get into community and then have your personal devotions every day. Now what happens is as you do this, as you engage with the word during the weekend messages, as you discuss the word in your Calvary group, as you meditate on the word during your personal devotions, you find yourself filled with the word. More and more, the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly so that when, hey, brother, sister, do you have something encouraging to say? You can stand up and out comes the word. Now, here's what impresses me about this message that we're about to read through in verses 17 through 41. Paul's first recorded message in the book of Acts, coming right here in a second. But before we start, let me just say this. What impresses me about his message, it's filled with the word. If you're with me now, say amen. Listen to this. I'm gonna read it and make sure I get it right. Paul's message was not a man-centered message based on felt needs about how to win at life. Let me say that again. Paul's message was not a man-centered message based on felt needs about how to win at life, how to have a positive outlook on life, how to have a more successful career. That's not what he did. Paul's message was a God-centered message that was filled with God's word and it led people to Jesus Christ. And so on that note, we begin in verse 16. And by the way, this is not a word-for-word -word message because um, we know that because Paul, Paul would sometimes preach for so long that people would fall out of the rafters and die. <laughs> and you know what he would do? And this is, this is we're gonna get to this later in the book of Acts. A guy actually fell out of the rafters and died. You know what Paul did? He went, prayed over him, and the Lord, through him, raised this kid from the dead, and he kept preaching. <laughs> okay, so some of you guys are worried right now. You know, how long are we gonna be here, Pastor? Uh, verse 41 is our last verse today, but um, this is not, this is not a, a transcript, a word-for-word -word transcript. This is the highlights that Luke adds, but it's filled with the Word of God. And so it says in verse 16, so Paul stood up, motioning with his hand. He said, men of Israel and you who fear God. What's the last word in verse 16? Listen, listen. The God of this people Israel chose 
Everybody say, our fathers. Okay, so we gotta stop right there real quick because what does he mean by our fathers? What he means is the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, whose stories can be found in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And so I wanna encourage you to read the book of Genesis. It starts with primitive history and then it goes on to patriarchal history. And so here's what I encourage you to do. Start reading the Bible. And I wanna encourage you to read the book of Genesis. In primitive history, you learn about creation. Yes, evolution is false. Young people, listen to me, evolution is false. Creation is real. Let me just give you one quick example. I mean, think about this. You have the sun, you have the earth. The earth is just far enough away from the sun to sustain life. Any closer we burn up, any farther away we freeze to death. You know what that tells me, that little simple illustration? That means that we, that that, that there is design in the universe. And if there's design, there's a designer. Doesn't just happen. And so there is creation, there was a fall, there was a worldwide flood. There is the dispersion of the nations at the Tower of Babel. That's chapters one through 11. You get to chapter 12, then you read the patriarchal history, the beautiful stories, and they are beautiful, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And so read Genesis. It's all about the beginnings, the beginnings of the material universe, the beginning of mankind, the beginning of history, the beginning of God's covenant people, Israel. And Genesis will answer questions like, Who is God? Who am I? Where did I come from? Why do I need a savior? What's this Abrahamic covenant thing all about? Which is very important, by the way. And so that's Genesis. That's where Paul starts. And he says in verse 17 that the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, Genesis, and made the people great during their stay in the land of what? Okay, so what book is he referring to now? Exodus. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of Egypt. Remember the Red Sea? Charleston Heston, Moses, right there in your Bible in verse 17. Verse 18, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. That's the rest of the Pentateuch. And so Paul now points to the rest of the Pentateuch or the Torah, which is made up of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so I wanna encourage you, read your Bibles, read these books. Read about the deliverance of the children of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. Read about the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Read about the rebellion of the people in Kadesh Barnea when God said, go take the land of Canaan. And they're like, but we're like grasshoppers in their sight. They're giants. Hey, let's go back to Egypt. God said, okay. (laughs) You're gonna now wander in the wilderness, last line, for 40 years. So many life lessons in the first five books of the Bible. And Paul says now in verse 17 that um, he put up with them in the wilderness, and then it says in verse 19 that after destroying Seven nations, okay, this is after they cross the Jordan and approach the city of Jericho. After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And so what book is Paul talking about now? He's talking about the book of Joshua, 
which is all about God's people taking possession of the promised land. And so after wandering for 40 years, praise the Lord, the, the children of Israel finally realized that we need to rely on the Lord. And when we rely on the Lord, guess what he does? He blesses us, and this led to the conquest of Canaan, the division of the land to the 12 tribes. They're receiving the inheritance of the land that God gave to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says in verse 19 that with God's help, look at verse 19, how many nations did they destroy? Seven nations. Did you know those nations are listed in Deuteronomy 7, verse 1? Everybody look at me. It's the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Termites. It's right there. It's the Deuteronomy 7.1. No, the, the last one is actually the, the Jebusites, not the Termites. But God, listen, if you're with me, say amen. God destroyed those nations. Now, liberal theologians and, and theological liberals, they hate this. They, they can't map, map, wrap their mind around this. God's so mean, why would he destroy seven nations? Can, can I just say something to you? The same one who brought you into this life can take you out. He's the creator, he's the boss, he's the Lord. We're not lords of our own life. He's the boss. And he's given us certain principles to live by and these seven nations were wicked and they were vile. Did you know God gave them 400 years to repent? How long have we been a nation in America? 200 and something, right? He gave them 400 years. Do you know what they were doing? They were worshiping false gods. They were engaging in all kinds of sexual immorality and they were offering their children as human sacrifices to false gods. So yes, God said Joshua, by the way, if Joshua lived in the time of the Greeks, his name would be Jesus or Jesus. Go in and take them out. Now isn't it interesting that right now, our world is engaging in worshiping the God of self, engaging in all kinds of sexual morality, and engaging in killing the unborn. How much time do we have before Joshua comes back, Revelation 19, Matthew 25, and says, enough. Now, now listen, when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back as a baby in a manger. He's coming back as a warrior. He's coming back to take back what is his. And he's gonna rule as the son of David over Israel and the world for a thousand years, but then forever in a new heavens and a new earth. It's, it's been prophesied in the scriptures, therefore we know it's going to happen. Evil will not continue on indefinitely. So what do we need to do? We need to make sure that we're right with God and take advantage of this age of grace that we live in where God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And so say yes to Jesus. Don't continue on in your worship of yourself, sexual immorality or um, killing the unborn or, or in any way supporting that. Now, if you're a woman here today and you've had an abortion, I'm not trying to condemn you. What I'm doing is I'm pointing you to Jesus. His blood can wash away your sin as if it never even happened. And he says, I love you, I'm, you're my daughter, I want you to walk with me forever. Forget about that and move forward with me. That's our Lord, that's our God. But you've got to make that decision in your life. 
And so what do we need to do? We need to turn our backs on worshiping the God of self and start worshiping the true God. We need to stop engaging in sexual immorality. I know this is a large crowd, and I know a lot of you maybe, be, maybe are here for the first time, but, but, but God's word says sexual immorality is defined like this. Any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage is sexual immorality. God created sex. He created it for a man and a woman in a covenant of marriage. And that's, by the way, the best sex you'll ever experience in your life is when you get with someone that God made for you and you stay with that person for the rest of your life. Our world says something different, but this is what God says. And so any activity outside, sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage is wrong. It's sinful. Now I know what I'm saying. You know, some of you look at me like I have five heads, like I'm an alien because the culture, the movies, the TV all say something different. You know, one night stands, go through as many men or as many women as you can. But listen, that's not our God. God wants us to live for him, to live for his glory. And when we live for him and his glory, blessing comes. You wanna be blessed or you wanna be cursed? That's the question. And so you can now take advantage of this beautiful age of grace that we live in and you can come to Christ and ask for his forgiveness and he'll act like it never even happened. He'll wash it away in his blood and he'll stick with you till you take your last breath as you follow him as a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. And so that's Joshua. And now we look at verse 20. Everybody look at verse 20. It says, all this took about 450 years. Okay, so all of what? Everything from 17b to 19. 450 years. That means that the children of Israel spent 400 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, and it took them about 10 years from the time they crossed the Jordan and entered into the promised land to divide the land and receive their inheritance. 450 years. And after that, he gave them what? Judges. So now Paul's going to another book in the Bible, the book of Judges. So Judges is all about what happens to people when they turn away from God. I wanna encourage you to read Judges because in the book of Judges, you're gonna see this sad cycle, a sad cycle of the children of Israel. They're in the land. They've inherited the promised land, right? But now they're living in prosperity and peace and they forget about God. So what do they do? They imitate their neighbors and they start to worship false gods. And that's called sin. And so what does God do? He chastises them, disciplines them. Enemies come and conquer them. They're crying out now in repentance. Lord, we're so sorry, right? Isn't that what we do? We get in trouble, we start to feel pain. Lord, help, right? And what does God do because he's so kind and loving? He delivers them raises up a judge, Samson, Gideon, Deborah, and all of a sudden they're delivered from the enemy occupation and now all of a sudden they're living in a measure of peace and prosperity, but you know what they do? They go right back to their false gods and so this same dumb cycle continues in the book of Judges where there was no king in those days, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so what's the lesson we can learn from this? The lesson we can learn is when we sin, I didn't say if, because we're all sinners, and we receive chastisement from the Lord because he loves us, and then we repent, and God delivers us, forgives us, and frees us from sin, 
it should stop right there. And instead of living on this level of, I need to do what's right because I don't want God to judge me. No, 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 we, under the new covenant, go to a new level and we say, I'm gonna live for the Lord because he's so kind and loving and gracious. And I'm gonna have this relationship like a daddy with his child and till my last breath live for him because it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, amen? So that's the new covenant age that's that we should live in. And then it says in verse 20, Paul continues in his synagogue sermon that after he gave them judges until Samuel, everybody say Samuel. Samuel. Now he's in a new book, Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. So the people of Israel decide no more theocracy, we want a monarchy. So they asked for a king and God gave them Saul. Be careful what you ask for. The son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. Be careful what you ask for. So bad when you get a bad leader. Verse 22, and when he had removed him, right? You learned this last week from Pastor Matt. Saul rejected the Lord, the Lord rejected him. So when he had removed him, he raised up who? Yay, David, to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. And so now Paul's pointing to the book of 1 Samuel. I wanna encourage you to read this book because 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is filled with action, adventure, drama, intrigue. It's a page turner. If you start 1 Samuel tonight, man, you're not gonna be able to put it down. And so in Samuel, as you learned last week, you learned that Saul was a man who hardened his heart, but thank God David was a man who was after God's heart. Now, did I say that Saul was a sinner and David was a perfect angel? Was David a perfect angel? No, he, big, he sinned big time. Here's the difference between Saul and David. When Saul sinned, he blamed others. He refused to take responsibility. The people you gave me. When David sinned, and he sinned, he owned up to it. He took responsibility, and with God's help, he repented. You see, God is looking not for perfect people. There are none. God is looking for people who will own up to their sin, take responsibility for their sin, and ask the Holy Spirit to help them repent of their sin. God is looking for people who have a heart like David, a heart for God, people who will actually do God's will in a world that doesn't really care about God. And so you continue to read now in 2 Samuel, you find this amazing promise. Check it out. It's called the Davidic, if you're taking notes, the Davidic covenant. And God says to David, David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure for how long before me? Forever. Okay, here's a really hard question. You ready for this? Think about it before you answer out loud. What nation did David rule over? Israel. Now, look at that again. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure, how long? Forever. Ladies and gentlemen, God has a future for Israel. We are not what you call replacement theologians in this church. We reject replacement theology, we reject what's called supersessionism, 
We reject that the church is fulfilling all the Old Testament promises for Israel. No, that doesn't, that doesn't fly here. We believe that the church is separate from Israel. And when you interpret the Bible with the literal, historical, grammatical interpretation, you find out that God has a plan for Israel. And when Jesus comes back, he will reign as the son of David over Israel and the world. Why? Because we don't, we don't interpret that allegorically. We interpret that literally. Does that make sense to you guys? Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne, David, shall be established forever. An unconditional promise from God to David that one of his descendants would rule forever. Guess who that descendant is? Yeah, it's in the very next verse. Look at verse 23. Of this man, David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior. Everybody shout out his name. Jesus. Jesus. Come on, you can do better than that. Say his name. Jesus. Say his name like you love him. Jesus. Jesus. See, every good Bible teacher in their Bible message, in their service, always gets to Jesus. Amen. And you either love him or you don't. You either are ashamed of him or you're un unashamed, embarrassed or not embarrassed, proud of him or not proud of him. We should never be embarrassed or ashamed of the name of Jesus. And by the way, you can say any word you want to at work, all kinds of curse words, the F-bomb, all kind of words, and you can talk about all other little gods and crystals and whatever, but you say the name of Jesus at work and you see what happens. The hair on people's neck goes <laughs> You know why? There's power in that name. Why don't we, why don't we? So are you embarrassed of the name, yes or no? No. On the count of three, say his name like, like you mean it. One, two, three, Jesus. Jesus. He's the answer for Port St. Lucie. He's the answer for the Treasure Coast. He's the answer for Florida. He's the answer for America. He's the answer for the world. Jesus. Jesus. And so verse 24, before his coming, John the Baptist proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he, I'm not the Messiah. No, behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. So John the Baptist was so popular among the common Jews, Paul takes advantage of that in this Jewish synagogue and he says, hey, guess what? John the Baptist said Jesus was the Messiah. Now in verse 26, he says, brothers, he's pleading with these people. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, that's the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the Pharisees, you remember those guys? Because they did not recognize Jesus nor understand the utterances of the prophets in their own Bible, which are read every Sabbath, every Saturday in synagogue service. They read the prophets, Isaiah, Psalms, Daniel, Jeremiah. It's all about Jesus. Look, look, look at what the leaders, the Sanhedrin did. 
at the end of verse 27, they fulfilled those prophecies by condemning Jesus. Could everybody look at me? And so Isaiah 53 is all about the suffering servant. That's Jesus. It's all about how he suffered and died for our sins. And that was written 700 years before Christ. The leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, the scribes and Pharisees, fulfilled that chapter by condemning Jesus. Paul's a scholar. He's referring them to this right now. In verse 27 and verse 28, he says, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him in Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, etc., they took him down from the tree, the cross, and laid him in a tomb. And so what Paul is doing is he's giving evidence to these Jews in the synagogue that Jesus is the Messiah. He's a descendant of David. John the Baptist said he's the Messiah. He's in, he's in the prophecies that are about the Messiah. He's the one that fulfills them. And now he gives the greatest evidence of all in verse 30. He says, but God raised him from the dead. I wonder how many people walked out the back door right now. God raised him from the dead. I wonder if you believe that in your heart. Unless, or do you think it's a fairy tale? But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. All right, so think about this. Put yourselves in the sandals of these Jews in the 2,000 years ago. Imagine you walk into the synagogue service. It's Saturday morning. You sit down in your normal seat. You look back and two out-of-towners come in the back door and they sit down. And they read the law and they read the prophets in the synagogue service. And then one of the rulers of the synagogue says, hey, do you two guys have anything to say? And Paul stands up, filled with the word, ready to share the word. And he says, guess what? John the Baptist said Jesus is Messiah. Your prophecies say Jesus is the Messiah. He's a descendant of David. Go down to the temple and check out the, the, the genealogy, geneal, geneal, uh, how do you say that word? Tell me. Thank you. That. <laughs> He's the Messiah. He was born of Joseph and Mary in the line of David. He's the Messiah. And all of a sudden, you're now feeling challenged. You're start, now starting to feel convicted about your unbelief. And you remember those stories from 15, 20 years ago of the healer Jesus from Judah and Galilee and the blind see and the deaf hear and the dead are raised. And then you think, well, our Sanhedrin condemned him as a false prophet. Pilate crucified him. But this guy's saying he's risen from the dead and he's been seen by eyewitnesses. And now a normal synagogue service is no longer normal. Now some people are rejoicing, some people are getting uncomfortable, and Paul's finishing up his sermon in verse 32. He says, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. He quotes Psalm 2-7, 1000 BC. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. He quotes Isaiah 55-3, 700 BC. 
Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. He quotes Psalm 1610, 1000 BC. And I'm sure some in the synagogue thought, yeah, but David wrote this and David's talking about himself. Well, wait a minute, look at verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, he died, and was laid with the fathers, and David's body saw, what's the last word in verse 36? Corruption, turned to dust. But he whom God raised did not see corruption. Let me just show you one of those um, prophecies of Christ's resurrection. This is Psalm 1610, 1,000 years BC, David writes, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your what see corruption? Holy one. And again, people say, well, he's talking about himself. Well, wait a minute. When David died and they buried him, what happened to his body in the grave? It decomposed. So who's this holy one whose body never saw corruption? Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah, the promised one who's gonna rule over Israel and the world forever. So a thousand years before Christ, the Bible, isn't this book amazing? See, they try to tell you it's full of mistakes and it's, it's uh, fairy tales, but no, 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 no. No book can do that. A thousand years BC, the Bible prophesies, foretells the resurrection of Messiah, the Holy One. And so now Paul wraps it up. He says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, in verse 38, that through this man, forgiveness of sins, that's how every good message should end, right there, a call for people to get their sins forgiven by Jesus. That through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed so not only will Jesus forgive your sins, he'll free you from the bondage of alcohol, drugs, pornography, hatred, bitterness, whatever sin God has you all wrapped up in your heart. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything, say everything, everything. from which you could not be freed by working really hard and keeping the law of Moses. See, this is good news, ladies and gentlemen. This is not bad news. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Here's your last verse he quotes in this Bible-filled message, Habakkuk 1.5. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. That's scary right there. There's people who are perishing without Jesus. Be astounded and perish for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells you. Why? Because they harden their hearts to Jesus. Here's your last point. Christ offers us forgiveness and freedom from sin. Are your sins forgiven? Have you come to Jesus? Have you looked to him as your savior, your Lord, your master? Do you need Jesus this morning? 
Here's what I'm gonna do. If you're here today and you need Jesus and you're not embarrassed, if you're here today and you need your sins forgiven and you're not ashamed of the one who died for you and rose again, and you wanna accept Jesus this morning, I'm gonna ask you to stand up wherever you are right now while everyone is looking around, no eyes closed, no heads bowed. God bless you and you. If you need Jesus, just stand to your feet, whoever you are. I'm gonna ask you to stand and remain standing. God bless you. You say, I need Jesus. I'm gonna ask you to stand and remain standing because he's the answer. Ladies and gentlemen, he's the answer. He'll fill your heart with love and joy and peace and forgiveness. And you'll, listen, you'll have assurance that heaven's your home. I'm not trying to scare anybody into the kingdom right now, but man, this past two weeks in our church, several people have passed away. Every single one of them, they're in heaven because they confess Jesus as their Savior and Lord. You need that assurance. Why mess around with your eternity? And so if you're not embarrassed, and by the way, he said, if you'll stand for me before men, I'll stand for you in heaven. And so if you wanna stand for Jesus today, just stand up and say, I need Jesus. I need the forgiveness of my sins. I wanna receive him as my Savior and Lord. Just stand up whoever you are. Awesome. 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 Let's really encourage these people as they stand to their feet today. God bless you in the, over there. Yeah, awesome. 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 Last 10 seconds. Anybody else wants to get in on this? and take your stand for Christ. Yep, in the back, awesome. Beautiful, beautiful. Good job, man, that's good. Good job, good job, good job. So let's give these people, um, give these people their free Bibles. You guys just stand up for just three more seconds and what we're gonna do is we're gonna give you guys some free Bibles and as the pastors are doing that, here, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna ask you to, those of you who are standing to really focus in on me right now and what I'm saying. And so, Jesus Christ, to make sure you fully understand what you're doing, is God in the flesh. He came to this world, was born of a virgin, and he lived a perfect life, the life that we could never live, completely fulfilling the law of Moses, perfectly before God. And then, because of our sin, and the wages of our sin is death, he died on a cross for us, shed his blood. We should have done that. Those of us who are, who are standing right now, we should have gone to hell and paid for our own sins, but he did it on the cross for us. And then he rose again the third day. And so what you're doing by standing is saying, I need you, Jesus. I need the forgiveness that only you can provide. And so if you're ready right now to receive Jesus as your savior, before I say this prayer, I'm gonna ask you, can you make it your own? Can you say this from your heart to his heart? so you're not just repeating words. So from your heart, say, Dear Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry that I've sinned against you. I know the penalty of my sin is death, but I believe you came and died for me. Thank you. I believe you rose again, and I'm asking you now to forgive me. Come into my life, 
I receive you as my savior and my boss. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. As these people sit down, can we encourage them one more time for the commitment that they just made? So, what I want to encourage you guys to do is those of you who accepted Christ and those of you who have not been baptized yet since you've accepted Christ, to go to our website and sign up for your baptism and, and you know, follow the Lord's commandment in baptism and just start coming every weekend. Start coming and, and get the word of God inside of you and grow in your relationship with Jesus. Thanks so much for your patience. I did go five minutes over, but I think you'll forgive me for that. Um, prayer partners and elders, come on forward. If you need prayer for anything today, I wanna encourage you to take advantage of the prayer partners on either side. And then if you just accepted Christ, um, can you let us just spend three minutes with you and encourage you? So if you just accepted Christ, I wanna ask you to come here in the middle and talk to one of our elders or pastors. And if you need prayer for anything else, the prayer partners are available for you. Let's all stand for closing prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for blessing the services. Thank you, Lord God, for the worship, the teaching of the word, the response. And Lord, help us all to be motivated by your grace, God, your grace to live for you. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys.